Welcome back to the Beyond Macros podcast, a show where we teach you about nutrition and the art of working in so you can get the most out of working out. This is the final episode in our Forgotten Food Group series, and we will be diving into the microbiome and probiotic foods. This show is brought to you by us, Beyond Macros, a nutrition coaching company that is focused on creating lasting transformations instead of perpetuating yo-yo dieting. This week, we launched registration for our group coaching program, which is designed to help you get leaner and improve performance now while building nutrition skills to maintain the transformation later. We are only inviting a small audience for this program, and that includes you as a Beyond Macros podcast listener. Registration closes January 14th, and membership is capped at 100 people. So if you're interested, head on over to beyondmacros.com slash group now. Today's show starts in the same place the last two shows did, at the beginning. Possibly before you're even born, bacteria migrate from the oral cavity of the mother through the body in, into the placenta. But what is more mainstream is the idea that upon a vaginal birth or a cesarean section, if one's born that way, um, is the first exposure that, a, that an infant has to, to the microbial world. That's Raja Deer, an expert in all things microbial and bacterial. He spent the last two years fully immersed in learning about the microbiome and is going to give us a crash course on the gut and microbiome, as well as how to use foods to improve health and performance. Your microbiome begins forming at or before birth, and from there, you are feeding the microbial system you have on board. Now we know that breast milk itself carries a microbial load, and and something I do want to go back to, which is about a third to a fifth of all the carbohydrates in breast milk aren't even used by the infant for an energy source. They're entirely uh, non-digestible carbohydrates that are food for bacteria. And so if you think about that co-evolutionary argument about microbe and man or woman co-evolving, you you think about how the human body evolved to, to, why would something that's the most metabolically intensive process for a woman to make when she's in the least capable position to go hunt or forage or, or gather or farm, whatever it may be, produce these compounds and produce these non-digestible carbohydrates. It's just, it's just so fascinating. Um, and then, so we know around six months, the first kind of uh, microbiota stabilizes. And then around two years, that infant has what's called a steady state microbiome. That, that the ratio of bacteria then from that point onwards can change. And they do change in as little as 24 hours based on the food and, and the macronutrients and micronutrients that you take. But the overall kind of community um, stays for the most part the same. The levels can go up and down. Um, the expression of uh, and the, the activity of each um, uh, strain can change slightly. But now we know that the, for the most part, the identity and the organisms that are present that have colonized stay. But those levels are always changing. We'll get to how these changes occur in the steady state microbiome. But first, let's establish what your gut is and why it's important to your overall health. The gut's probably the largest interface between the body and the external world. Most people don't know that your internal intestinal passage is actually considered medically an, an external surface. So it's just very much like your skin. Only when something goes beyond it, uh, it, it enters into technically what your body would, where your body would begin. Um, and so really the gut is, is this massive, massive interface that has to do the two most complicated things that are a little, in many ways, contradictory. The first is has to keep pathogens um, and disease-causing agents out, of which their exposure is, is, is many. 
Um, and the second is it has to selectively allow in nutrients that keep you alive. Um, and so you can imagine kind of the machinery that's involved to keep bad things out, but very selectively allow good things in, how complex that is. The second part is that the gut is um, in terms of nerve endings, uh, neurotransmitters, um, one of the most active organs in the body, especially after the brain, and actually the brain's outsourced many of its functions um, to, to that organ system. And so a lot of the same machinery that's, that's used or involved um, in decision-making and, and signaling is, is involved in the gut as well. And the gut and microbiome aren't just important to health and cognitive function. There is evidence to suggest it might have a role in performance and that athletic performance might have a role in gut health. Folks that exercise and athletes uh, have a very different um, signature of bacteria in their gut than those that don't. Um, and now a lot of scientists are trying to figure out whether exercise causes a healthier gut microbiome or whether a healthier gut microbiome improves one's ability in performance and in general states of health. So the, the causality there, uh, the direction of which way that research is going is still pretty early, but there's definitely a connection um, across many different organ systems in the body. They've even found a common strain between Olympic athletes. All it took to figure this out was driving a van around asking them for some poop. John, who's, who's the founder of the company, tells it very well when he says, you know, when he was first starting out, he was chasing after Boston Marathon runners, asking them for for their shit, <laughs> um, literally driving around in a van collecting this. And, that, and, and, and through that process, he was able to find, um, there's a couple of mechanisms here that are really exciting. And so um, the first is in recovery. So as the, after, after performance, you, your body has a buildup of lactate. Um, and so now here he found a shared bug amongst multiple elite athletes from multiple different sports. So long distance Olympians, uh, weightlifters, um, endurance athletes and swimmers, Olympian swimmers, all shared a very similar to identical species of bug, which in its process breaks down and clear clearance of lactate. Interesting. So, so in, those are all different energy system sports too. All different energy system sports. Yeah. Um, and so you're finding here that, you know, once again, I, I, I want to be careful because I don't know if the fact that they exercise so intensely created an environment where this species could flourish or if the presence of this species meant that compounded over the course of their um, training regimen over the course of a lifetime, they were marginally better. And so therefore it aided in allowing them to, to rise to the top of their trade. Um, and so we still don't know which way the causation is, but there's very certainly a very clear link between, and not only a, a link between what bugs there were, but now a mechanism, which is in, in science the most important thing and, and the hardest thing often to find. Now that we've established some basics of the gut and how the microbiome is formed, Let's get a solid definition of the microbiome and then talk about how the gut and the microbiome interact. The microbiome is the collection of bacteria, viruses, fungi, um, all microorganisms that exist uh, in and on the human body. Almost all of it, I think over 90% is focused in the colon. Um, so what, when, when we call, refer to the gut, we're referring to the small intestines, but mainly the colon, which is the large intestines. And the microbiome plays a massive role in the health of the gut, which plays a huge role in the health of our whole body as a system. All of the activity that's happening in, in the gut that is not immediately related to nutrient absorption is from that collection of mi microorganisms. Here they produce metabolites. They reinforce the barrier of the gut that we spoke about earlier to keep those, those nutrients out. They regulate your body's inflammatory response. They have immunoprotective benefits. And now kind of the area that I'm most passionate about and what we're focused 
pretty extensively on is what are the byproducts that they're making that then enter into our bloodstream and have all sorts of effects throughout the body. So uh, depending on who you speak to, between 10 and 25% of the metabolites that are floating through your bloodstream originated from your gut. The structural health of the gut affects the whole body as a system, and bacteria plays a major role in the structural health of the gut. In the colon, now we're going even more downstream, um, there's a really interesting phenomenon. So here you have the, your, your epithelial cells in your colon are actually called colonocytes. Um, but it's the same thing, it's just where they are located in the colon. And here we know that um, their favorite, this is, this is such a good example of that human microbe coevolution. So those cells actually use short chain fatty acids, which are produced by gut bacteria as one of their primary sources of energy. So what happens when those colonocytes don't have uh, enough butyrate, for instance, or have enough of these short chain fatty acids, they actually start using and degrading the mucosa itself. So literally one could say in a very sensationalized way that without the right short chain fatty acids, in which case that's, that's an example of a metabolite, which just means um, something that's metabolized or produced by bacteria. And this is a very, very important one. Um, that without the right quantity or amounts of those that your colon essentially starts eating, your body can start eating itself. As we get ready to dive into how to use foods to improve health and performance via the microbiome, let's take a peek at where things go wrong. This is a state called dysbiosis. Dysbiosis is kind of a catch-all term that just means a disrupted microbiome. Alcohol causes dysbiosis, arguably an overconsumption of what's called as proteolytic foods, which is high, high overdose in protein, um, can cause a state of dysbiosis. Sugar heavy, simple, simple sugar heavy to the point where there's poor absorption and passage and primarily the yeasts, but also many microorganisms that like simple sugars can experience kind of an overgrowth. Dysbiosis can also be caused by an overuse of antibiotics. The first and obvious and most prevalent answer is the overuse of antibiotics. Um, if you think of antibiotics, they're kind of a nuclear bomb that you're dropping in that kills everything, no discrimination whatsoever. Depending on the, the microbe, it can take as long as two years, some of them never come back, and some of them um, as quickly as, as two or three months afterwards. But we know that just even a single course of antibiotics has a, has a massive shift. And one other major risk factor for dysbiosis appears to be a low-fiber diet. Our ancestors would eat about 100 grams of fiber a day, and that's roughage. Um, so this, this is no chance of it being absorbed by the body. It not only has an effect on motility and, and GI transit, but it also provides various um, levels of these non-digestible nutrients for these bacteria. I think the average American consumes between 10 and 15 grams today of fiber, if even that. Um, and so you can see that there's, you know, correlative for sure, but um, a low fiber diet would be what I would say the most daily uh, risk factor for, for a dysbiotic gut state. And this brings us into the forgotten food group, bacteria. Raja and I first established what a probiotic food is, and I learned it's not just one that contains bacteria or is fermented. It really means it's a live microorganism that confers a health benefit on the human host. And what that means is that one must show that there is a health benefit before calling something probiotic, and that's just work that a lot of people don't want to do. We also talked about the ways that probiotic foods can have a benefit to health. And it turns out it's not just about colonizing and repopulating the gut. There's multiple ways in which these, these foods can be beneficial for you. They can either be through the bacteria themselves. Uh, they could be through changing um, the 
constant having some of a prebiotic effect. So they change in, in a beneficial way your existing microbiota, or it could just be the um, acidifying effects uh, of that, that, that existed is in some circles, it's called the postbiotics, which are just the fermentative byproducts, the lactic acids, the short chain fatty acids, um, that the, that have, have mild, but measurable benefits, um, energy metabolism, um, changing the pH of the gut in, in a favorable way, um, or even kind of just being used to eliminate or kill off pathogens that exist in, in other foods things that you're eating in your, in your, in your food alongside it. So there, there's, there's, there's a kind of a hierarchy. Um, I would say that the gold standard is if you really look at the effect that a probiotic has, if it's having it in a human at the systemic level, that's what is kind of tier one. Tier two is if you're looking at having a very localized and measurable effect in this case in the gut. Um, and tier three is if, you know, in a lab or in a dish, it kind of works to fight off other things that could be bad for you. And so I'd say most of the firm, the fermentative foods, uh, fermented foods and what are called probiotic foods work in the third and, and maybe second category. Um, but I think that a lot of research needs to be done. The fact that not every food that says probiotic on the package is actually probiotic is super confusing for the consumer. So I asked Raja to break down which fermented foods he has found in his research actually deserve their probiotic badge. Sauerkraut, I would say, is my favorite food that I would say qualifies as a probiotic. And I can say that because I know that one of the dominant strains in sauerkraut is a strain called Lactobacillus plantarum. Um, and that is a very, very powerful strain that in multiple models and in human studies has shown to have a probiotic effect. So kimchi, possibly. Um, I think there's a study that looked at about the 800 or 900 so strains that could exist in all various fermentation cultures for, for kimchi and found three or four of them to have probiotic potential, but, but hardly estab uh, established and certainly not past the point of a human clinical study. Of course, most people think of yogurt when they think of probiotic foods. And the history of yogurt as a probiotic food is a great story. The original probiotic was, was sour milk and it was yogurt. And it was, it was and I, for, for people that aren't familiar with the yogurt story, it was discovered from a village in Bulgaria um, where they found that this small little cluster of people were living significantly longer than everybody else in the neighboring environments. And it's because they had this, the strain that's found in yogurt, Lactobacillus bulgaricus, was named after that region, the dominant strain. And then now it's called subspecies Delbrucki, but the species is, is Lactobacillus bulgaricus. We also talked about every yogi's favorite beverage, kombucha which led us to a discussion about the potential downsides of store-bought versus home-fermented foods. One interesting note I would say about kombucha um, is that we recently came across some research that shows that many of the benefits from kombucha um, actually happen because that ancestral SCOBY culture, so to speak, is a very, um, it's, a, it's an ecosystem in and of itself. It's a coexistence of different bacteria and yeasts that kind of form this community. In ramping things up to make them commercially available and commercial scale, you actually have to use a lot of manufacturing processes which are not beneficial um, for, the, for, for the health of microbes or for bacteria. So think like pasteurization for yogurt. You're not going to get, there's no chance that there's microbes that are surviving pasteurization, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, in, in a SCOBY culture, you actually at some point want to neutralize the fermentation. Otherwise, it'll continue fermenting inside the bottle, but you want to cap, cap it at a certain point. Um, and so oftentimes I think that, and, I, and if you, if you do a search of the literature and there's some, some studies I can share with you and, and data I've seen presented that kind of, I think it was the, 
um, the European Microbiome Congress uh, this past summer, um, where they really looked at a lot of commercial and store-bought fermented foods and found that the effect that it had in mice, the beneficial effect it had in mice was completely non-existent, but home-cultured or um, home-grown, non-pasteurized, somewhat raw, in that kind of immediate post-fermentative state, um, did tend to have an effect. It also turns out a food doesn't have to be fermented to confer a probiotic benefit, which is really cool. I'll give you an example. There's uh, polyphenols. Uh, Polyphenols are the the aspects of plants that are responsible for their pigmentation. Um, And there's a lot of research now, um, some of it that we're actually leading, um, that's showing the effect that that has on modifying the, the gut microbiota in a beneficial way. Um, oftentimes prebiotics modify the gut microbiota just as much, if not more than the probiotics themselves. And since a low fiber diet is a risk factor for dysbiosis, Raja and I also discussed how to use food to feed your gut bacteria that's already there. The adage continues to be, um, to mirror a diverse diet that has high sources of non-digestible carbohydrates. Um, artichokes are a really good source, um, Pea is a very good source. Um, I would say sweet potatoes, actually resistant starches and and a kind of fun food fact, which is really applicable is that um, if you, if you are eating rice um, or if you're eating sweet potatoes or these resistant starches, you should cook them, cool them, and then you can cook them up again if you'd like. Um, But make sure that after the initial cooking of them, there's a process by which it's brought back up to a, a steady state room temperature and then it can be heated back up again because that alters the structure of the resistant starch from, I think, an R3 to an R4 um, in the category, which makes it more beneficial um, or, or less glycemic, certainly, at least. I hope you enjoyed this episode on the microbiome and the forgotten food group of bacteria. This food group is just starting to be remembered, which is awesome. Raja's company, Seed, is launching some amazing products this spring. And if you'd like to stay in the loop and get on the list to learn more about them, you can visit their website, seed.com. And Raja and I had a far-reaching conversation, so I plan to bring you a short episode about how to use a probiotic and prebiotic strategy to recover from antibiotic use. This should be really helpful for all of you in the Northern Hemisphere with those post-New Year's sniffles. To get that episode, make sure you subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave a review for the show and let us know how you liked this Forgotten Food Group series and if there are any topics or series you'd like to hear covered. Next week, we'll be back with a conversation I had with Stacey Harris and Maddie Turner of The Chief Life. They just crossed the 100 episode mark with their show, and I was able to dive in and ask them what practices they've learned from their guests that have stuck and how they approach doing the work. Because I know as a nutrition coach that owns a company, sometimes it's hard to balance ambition and walking the walk. They also just had me as a guest on episode 102 of their show. So if you're keen to hear me talking about nutrition live and uncut, go check it out at the Chief Life Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next week.